All right, guys, if you have your Bible, open and find the Old Testament book of Joshua. This summer, as most of you know, we have some guests with us this morning who may not know. We've been making our way through the book of Joshua. If you've been here, I hope it has been a beneficial study for you so far. I've enjoyed it. I, it's been a challenge. I've never taught through Joshua before. I've also enjoyed it for one reason that I've mentioned before, that I, I'm convinced that the Old Testament is still far too neglected among us. Um, that we might be familiar with some of the big themes or the big stories, the big events. But I think by and large, we, a lot of us don't have a confident grasp of the Old Testament. And it's sort of, sort of still intimidating to a lot of us when we read it. Um, but the Apostle Paul said in Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in former days, that would be the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, that being the Old Testament in that case, we might have hope. So the Old Testament wasn't just written to lead Old Testament saints to faith in Christ. It wasn't just for them, um, but also to lead and encourage New Testament believers in Christ, in, right down to us. So it's a good thing that we give our careful attention to these far too neglected books of the Old Testament. So we find ourselves in Joshua chapter 8 this morning. And with this chapter, we're still in the second major um, section of the book of Joshua. Um, I won't rehearse all the different sections, but the first section, chapters 1 through 5, uh, recounted for us the, the Israelites' preparation to enter into the promised land. The, th this is the generation of Israelites who were small children or who were not yet born when the Lord brought them out of slavery in Egypt. Um, and so this is the Israelites at the end of the 40 years of wilderness wandering. And the, the first generation had all died in the wilderness because of their hardness of heart, because of their uh, unbelief and disobedience and grumbling before the Lord. You, you read Exodus, read Numbers, and how the Lord brought them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. They saw it with their own eyes, and it's not, it's, it, it feels like it's almost immediately thereafter that the, the awe and the wonder wears off, and they're grumbling and complaining and unbelief, wishing they were back in Egypt. Um, well, they all died in the wilderness, and it's with this generation, this next generation, that the Lord would fulfill his promise he had made to Abraham to bring his people into a land uh, that he promised to give them where, where he would be their God and they would be his people, and they would remain in that land of promise uh, in his presence and under his blessing, provided that they unlike the generation prior to them, would walk in obedience to his law. Chapters 1 through 5, I said, was about their preparation in it, to enter that land. And now we're in the middle, with chapter 8, we're in the middle of the second section that began in chapter 6, and will run all the way through chapter 12, where they are in the midst of, of, of conquest, actually to take the land. And, uh, you know, this the land that had was presently occupied by Canaanites and Amorites. God had promised to Abraham in chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 21 and on and on and on. They would enter this land. So far in the conquest that we've seen 
beginning in chapter 6, we've seen the miraculous events of the fall of Jericho, the walls falling down without anyone ever laying a finger on it, merely as they walked around the, the uh, wall, the city, as God commanded. Not, not making a sound until the seventh day, and the seventh time on the seventh day when they walk, walked around. They shouted, trumpets blew, walls fell. Um, we saw in the last chapter, chapter 7, which we saw two weeks ago. Interestingly, they go, they go to the next place, Ai, tiny town, tiny place, but, but the people of Israel fell and fled at Ai. Why? Because of the disobedience of one man, one Israelite, Achan, who despite the clear, you, we read it in chapter 6, the, the clear and the strong uh, warnings from the Lord, Achan nevertheless took some of the devoted things, took some of the treasures from Jericho for himself. He and his family died for that. Someone might wonder why the consequences for Achan were so strong um, uh, despite uh, what seemingly is not that serious of an offense. But I think the qu- if, if you ask that question, I think a lot of people do. Because a, a lot of us today, we're taken back by some of the intensity of some of the consequences in the Old Testament. I, I think we ask that kind of question. I think the question itself underestimates the holiness and the worth and the majesty of God. And, 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 and not only that, but it also underestimates the danger, the danger of sin and disobedience against him. Not danger just in terms of the, the consequences that that sin and disobedience rightly brings upon us from the Lord, but also in terms of what that sin actually does further to us, how it, how it changes us. Everything we do, everything we do, is not, it's not just things we do. They are doing things to us whether that's worship or whether it's disobedience. And, um, and so the Lord, that's why the Lord throughout the law repeatedly warns the people, admonishes them to walk in disobedience, not to go astray, not to love the, thing, love the things of God, don't love the things of the world, don't walk in that way. Why? Because God knows that if they do that, their hearts would be dragged along with it and they would be led astray and led away from the Lord. And they would become just like the nations around them and just like the generation before them. So the consequences for Achan in chapter 7 were A, just because of the holiness of God, and B, kind. Kind to the rest of the people to instill in them a godly fear of transgression. Um that would lead them to fall away. But they fell at Ai in their first attempt in chapter 7. And as we come to chapter 8 today, we'll read about their second attempt at Ai. Like the two chapters before it, it is a sobering account. But I do feel like, as, as Paul said, there is a lot to teach, and, and, to teach us and encourage us here. So that being said, let's read the chapter together. Paul told Timothy not to neglect the public reading of the word, and so we should as much as we can honor that admonition. So if you found Joshua chapter 8, follow along with me as I read aloud, beginning in verse 1. 
And the people, excuse me, and the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, and his land. And you, you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock shall you take as plunder for yourselves. Lay an ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain steady. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say they are fleeing before us, from us, just as before. And so we will flee before them. And then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city. For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush, and they lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent the night that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, and he and the elders of Israel before the people of Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces. The main encampment was nor that was north of the city and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place toward the Arabah to meet Israel in battle. But he did not know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in this city called together to pursue them. And as, as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go out after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city, and the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place. And as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven. I wonder what they were thinking. And they had, to, they had no power to flee this way or that, for the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers and when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city and that the smoke of the city went up then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai and the others came out from the city against them so that they were in the midst of Israel some on this side and some on that side and Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped but the king of Ai they took alive brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, 
and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city, Israel, took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded at the, at, at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the, men, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. Necessary for us to know who you are, who we are, how we are to come to you. So, Lord, would you, would you please give us eyes to see clearly the truth in this passage? Lord, would you give us minds to understand? There are difficult things here. Would you give us minds to understand the truth here? And then would you please give us hearts to embrace the truth here? Give us wills to obey whatever it is you call us and admonish us to do here. Give us all um, eyes to see and ears to hear. Give me the help that I really need to teach this passage. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so as you probably saw again what I meant when I said this is a sobering chapter. You can say that about almost every chapter in this section of the book. Even still, it is true here. I mean, uh, and it's an intriguing chapter because uh, you go from this gruesome and graphic battle scene, which ends with the king hanging on a tree to sundown and the sun goes down, they take it down, they throw his body against the wall and pile it with stones, and then all of a sudden you're not there anymore. You're at this solemn covenant ceremony, hushed while they stand there for who, who knows how long reading the law. Um, and the change is rather abrupt. 
A couple of weeks ago, so it's intriguing, but a couple of weeks ago when we looked at chapter 6 and, and Jericho, we looked at it from the vantage point of three questions that we often ask of, and I encourage you to ask of any question we come to. What does this passage teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? What does it lead us to do in response? And, um, and I think uh, when we come to this chapter, likewise, there are some helpful and important things to see if we approach it that way. So if you're taking notes, that's again how we're going to work through this passage, just as we did chapter 6. What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about ourselves? What does it lead us to do in response? Um, like I said, I've I tell you, this is a good thing to ask of any passage. And it's good to, to, to look at and think carefully about passages like these, where it's just one battle after another. And you can ask these questions of the text, and, 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 and what you're going to find is either you're going to find uh, the same truths emphasized again and again in the passage, which is a good thing. Don't start tuning it at, out that point, at that point. Start paying ever more close attention to that point because the things that I, find, that, I, that I think are important to tell my children, I tell them again and again and again. So if the Lord is impressing upon us the same thing again and again and again, listen all the more carefully. But sometimes you might come to these and you ask those questions and you'll see something else that, that you didn't see previously. And that's important as well. So I think we'll see some of that here. So let's take a closer look at the text and see what we can learn it, from it in these ways. First, considering what does it teach us about God? There are a lot of things that we could glean about the character of God in this passage. If we looked at it minutely enough in the different aspects of this text, we could see a lot of things. But in the time that we have, I do want to highlight five quickly. Don't let that emphasis on the quickly, okay? Um, we do have a time limit. And as I alluded to, these are, these are going to be things that we're not meeting for the first time here. These are going to be things that, that we've seen before, but they, we need to be reminded here again that the Holy Spirit, through the author of Joshua, is repeating these divine characteristics for our instruction and our encouragement. So first of all, to no surprise, this chapter specifically highlights yet again the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. The sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. As we've already seen in earlier chapters, we have repeated yet again the Lord saying to Joshua, and therefore through him to all the people, the certainty that Ai will fall to Israel before a finger is moved. Uh, Israel will take the victory. Why the certainty? What does the text say? You don't get past the first verse of the chapter before you have yet again this promise to Joshua from the Lord where he says, quote, See, I have given, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city, his land. That is past tense. That's past tense. That, that, I have given it to you. Now, you'll see more assurances like this a couple of more times in the chapter as, as the battle is going on for Ai. We saw it. For example, Joshua in verse 7. Joshua, therefore, gives the people the assurance. He says in verse 7, For the Lord your God will give it into your hand. Keep fighting, men, because he will give it into your hand. And likewise, the Lord himself says again to Joshua in the midst of the battle in verse 18, I will give it into your hand. Those are future assurances based on a past 
settled sovereign decree. Right? When he says in verse 1, I have given the king, the people, the city, the land into your hand, when did he do that? When did he do that? You might say, well, he did it in Genesis 12 or Genesis 15 when he made the promise to Abraham. That would have been prior to this, and so certainly that would be true, and, and it might suffice um, to explain the predestined uh, certainty of the outcome here. Um, but And, and if, if this is all we knew, that would be a perfectly fine answer, but this is not all we know. Scripture elsewhere, Old Testament and New, we don't have time to rehearse it all, uh, situates the certainty a lot further back than that. Just one example of the New Testament, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, talks about God's election of all who believe, which that, that election, that choosing, it says in Ephesians 1, 4, happened before the foundation of the world, before creation itself. And in that, in that same time frame, Ephesians 1, 11 says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined, that would be before the foundation of the world, according to the purpose of him who works all things. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. And we learn, we, but, and, and so the, the working out of all things according the counsel of his will for all things would have taken place at the same time of the choosing before the foundation of the world. We learn from passages like that why the old Christian creeds and confessions confess that God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And Jesus said, not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father. Not a sparrow. Why did Jesus say something like that? He's saying even the minutest thing, even the most seemingly insignificant thing, who cares if a sparrow falls to the ground? But it doesn't happen apart from the will of the Father. So when the Lord promises Joshua in the very first verse that he has given Ai into their hands before one move is made in the battle, God is saying this was a certainty before he ever created the world. All things work together for the good of those who love him because God causes all things to work together in that way. Right? And to promise that all things work together for the good of those who love him requires that God is sovereign over all things. If there's anything outside of his sovereign control, he can't make that promise. So the fall of tiny Ai was no less the work of, the, of a sovereign God than was the miraculous walls tumbling of Jericho. Both fell for one and the same reason. God gave them into their hands. Hence, Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? But we see also a second truth about God. We see the justice of God in this text. The justice of God. Now, that might sound surprising to some when we read startling verses. Like verse 22, there was none left in Ai that survived or escaped. None. Or verse 24, when Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword. Or verse 26, they devoted all the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Verses like that are hard to read for a lot of people. But, not to belabor all that I've already said back in chapter 6, one only needs read again Leviticus chapter 18. 
about and, and, and God's description in that chapter of the Canaanites and of the Amorites who lived in that land, the people of Jericho, the people of Ai. Read, his, read Scripture's own account of what these people were like in those cities and the things that they practiced, not just sexual immorality of the grossest kind, heterosexual sin, homosexual sin, bestiality, but worst of all, child sacrifice. Those are atrocities that the Lord patiently endured for generations before justly meeting out His righteous condemnation on them. You know, from where we sit, however millennia later, we have the audacity a lot of times to, 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 to question the justice of God in passages like this. When if we had been there, I'm convinced, if we had been there and had, had, had seen child sacrifices with our very eyes, there is no way we would question the justice of God here. No way at all. And it's against that dark, bleak backdrop, the justice of God here, that we also see a third thing about God, which is His mercy. The mercy of God that we don't need to overlook. Where do we see the mercy of God in a chapter like this? I, I think we see it at the end. We probably see it in a lot of ways, but I think we see it in the, at the end of the chapter when they are renewing the covenant with God. And it may, may not be as you expected to see it, but I'm talking about two different times at the end of the chapter where a particular group of people is mentioned being there. What are those? Look at verse 33 where we're specifically told in verse 33, after the battle is over, renewing the covenant, verse 33, and all Israel sojourner as well as native. Two verses later in verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. God and the people of Israel, God commanded in the law to welcome the sojourner. Welcome the sojourner uh, who, who, uh, who had repented and trusted in the God of Israel, who lived, and they, they would live peacefully and, and blessed among the people. Just a reminder here, Jericho was Rahab's hometown, right? Um... She was a sojourner. She wasn't a native born. Rahab was living blessed in Israel. She was spared the judgment that, it, that Jericho got. The, these sojourners are nothing more than living, breathing, walking around signs of God's mercy to those who repent and believe. This would have been true for every town they would have come against. We've already been told there was not a town, there was not a people in this whole region who had not heard of Israel, who had not heard of the God of Israel, who had not heard of the army of Israel. They, they heard about them before they ever got there. There was plenty of chance, therefore, for them to repent. Plenty of chance. And they would have been welcomed in Israel by the mercy of God. And this is a good place to remind you of a good truth that's helpful to keep straight in your mind. This is not another characteristic of God, but just in a, 
final elaboration of this one and the previous one. Before God, nobody ever gets injustice. Nobody ever gets injustice. Every, every person either, they receive from him either justice or mercy. Justice or mercy. Never injustice. And we see both his justice and his mercy beautifully displayed here. Fourthly, we learn about what we learn about God in this passage is again his holiness. His holiness. We won't stay here long as this is such a prominent theme in seemingly every chapter of the Bible. That's why even when you read a chapter to a little kid who's who's been in church, you say, What does this passage teach about God? No matter what you read, they're gonna say, He is holy. You know, because it's and it's probably true. Because it's almost in every chapter. And in here, his holiness, we've already seen it behind his sovereignty. We've already seen it behind his justice, behind his mercy. But we see it explicitly, at the, again, at the end of the chapter, as they renew their covenant with the Lord, Joshua read what? He read the law of God in the hearing of all the people. It says in verse 35, there was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read. Let me just say, they were there for a while. Um, but I want to draw your attention to one, just one phrase mentioned in verse 34. That among the law, the blessing and the curse is specified. What is the blessing and the curse? That is passages like Deuteronomy 28. It may be very literally referring to Deuteronomy chapter 28 where in that chapter, uh, blessing, God's blessings for obedience and his curses for disobedience are outlined in detail. And these simply de demonstrate the unflinching holiness of the Lord God, which is why Jesus was not exaggerating even a little bit when he said in Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And that's just a more explicit way of saying the repeated refrain in Leviticus, you therefore must be holy as I am holy, because I am holy. It is in the presence, as they say, of the thrice holy God, holy, 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 that the prophet Isaiah wailed, woe is me. I am undone. I am lost. I am am ruined the Lord is sovereign he is just he is holy but merciful fifthly and finally faithful to his word this is easily seen in all sorts of ways in the book I just don't want you to miss one interesting way that it's seen here again at the end of the chapter when they're renewing the covenant, we're told that it took place between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. You're like, okay, so what? Well, why would they have had it there? Situated between two mountains, it's, it was rather effective because between those two mountains, it would have been acoustically a very good place to hear the reading of the law. But also... Um, Scripture elsewhere tells us that the place between those two mountains was a place called Shechem. And 
Commentators tell us that Shechem was about 40 miles east of Jerusalem. So what? Well, it happens to be the very spot, which as we read in Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7, that Abraham first received the promise of that land from the Lord, that he would bring his descendants into a land of their own. And it's in that very spot that that promise is being fulfilled here. Uh, and the people are renewing their covenant with the Lord. Generations come and go, but a thousand years are as a day in the, in the Lord. He never forgets his promises, and he never fails to keep them. This passage has a lot to teach us about God, and, and there's no doubt more here than, than we've already mentioned. That's why, we, that's why we could read Scripture our whole life long and never grow bored with it. Continually see and notice things we had not noticed before. What a what a treasure. <laughs> um, there are a few things we need to note quickly about ourselves and think about that for just a moment. What does this passage teach us about ourselves? I just want to point to two things briefly. The first thing that I would, about ourselves, that, that, that sort of, at least to me, just sort of jumps out at you right off the bat, hits you in verse 2. And for me, I would call it the foolishness of greed. The foolishness of greed. What am I talking about in verse 2? Well, it'll, it'll make better sense if you read this chapter in conjunction with the last one. Don't think of chapter 8 on an island by itself, but, but flowing out of what you just read in chapter 7. And just read verse 2 again with Achan in the back of your mind. Okay? And you, and you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock shall you take as plunder for yourselves. Lay ambush against city behind it. How, how differently do you read that when you intentionally keep Achan in the back of your mind? What did Achan do? He deliberately went against the express prohibition of the Lord against taking any of the goods, against any of the plunder from Jericho for himself. Achan, Achan deceitfully took some of the things for himself, and he couldn't even enjoy them. He dug a hole in his tent and buried them. And he died for his disobedience. But had he simply trusted the Lord in the very next town, the Lord would say to all the people, take, you, take what you want from the city. Take what you want from the goods. He could have taken freely, Without fear, without shame, does this mean that the, that the Lord always promises us material prosperity if we just wait and trust? Not at all. But it does mean that if we'll just trust His Word and obey, He'll never fail to provide for us. He'll never fail to provide whatever is right for us. Let me put it that way. And not just always our needs, but sometimes our wants. You know? The Lord is good. And we often forfeit ever seeing it because of our own greed. Taking for ourselves and not even able to, able to enjoy it as the Lord uh, would allow us to if we waited on Him. The second thing I'd note about ourselves here comes from thinking about what happens to Ai here and what eventually happens to Israel itself later on in its history. And that is the power of sin apart in us apart from the grace of God. The power of sin in us apart from the grace of God. You, you know that 
the judgment that Ai received from their, for their sins here in Joshua 8 is the same judgment that the Lord would mete out against Israel itself. First at the hands of the Assyrians, later at the hands of the Babylonians. The same thing. For the same sins. For the same sins. That's the point. Our, our flesh is weak. It's weak to keep the law of God. This generation in Joshua is no different than their parents. Their parents died in the wilderness. This generation's no different. They're no better. Do you remember? It's, it's this, these guys, their parents. Their parents are the ones who in Exodus chapter 24 promised the Lord all that the Lord has spoken we will do. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They literally said that twice after they heard the law. That generation eagerly promised those things after they witnessed the mighty works of God in bringing them out of Egypt. But that, that wonder and that, that, that eagerness, it subsided with the passage of time. And that generation uh, is important. That this generation, Joshua 8, is implicitly making the same gesture to the Lord in this covenant renewal. After witnessing the wonder of Jericho and the wonder of Ai, renewing the covenant, implicitly saying, we will be obedient. Well, just keep reading Joshua. In fact, just read Judges right after it. Judges is as dark as Jericho and Ai. The law cannot change a human heart to cause it to obey. Only the grace of God can. And so as we look for what to learn of ourselves in this passage, I suppose we don't come away with much encouraging apart from the grace of God, but it leads us to our final question. What does it lead us to do? What what would this passage lead us to do in response? And I suppose I would address it in this way. There's a way that we ought not to respond and a way that we ought to respond. In light of what I just finished saying, power of sin apart from the grace of God, weakness of our flesh, how we ought not to respond may not be much of a surprise, but I'm convinced that this particular response is still a knee-jerk reaction in our flesh. It's a knee-jerk reaction, especially among people in our evangelical Southern Baptist tribe. And that is to read a passage like this and only notice the importance of obedience and then in this text, see, oh, they, they, they repented and they obeyed and God gave them a victory. And that the victory being a result of their obedience in the matter of Achan. And, and, and they see their, their covenant renewal at the end of the chapter and, and their commitment to obedience. And they feel real good about that, rightly, right? Not, not poo-poo and obedience here. But, but they feel like, they read that, and they, they feel like that's, that's what we should take away from it. 
Buck up. Be obedient. Be better. Be better, be, be more obedient, and God will bless. And it sounds funny. I, I think we misread passages like this when we, when we do it that way. And we read so many others in the Old Testament. Not just patches like this. The one that most readily comes to mind is, is patches like Psalm 24.3. Psalm 24.3. Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in the holy place? Who? How does it answer? Verse 4. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And there are some who read that and conclude, okay, that's what i got to do. I want to ascend to the hill of the Lord. I want, so i got to strive for a clean heart. i got to strive for a pure heart. i gotta, I got to do this. i got to do that. It, it sounds strange to say this, but yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, because it's true. Who's going to ascend to the hill of the Lord? The one with a pure heart. The one with clean hands. The one who doesn't lift up his soul to what is false. It's true. And yes, because who could ever argue with our need for clean hands, pure heart? Who could argue with the good obedience to the law of God as we see in this covenant renewal on Joshua? Yes and no. No, because who can do that? Who is that? It's not me. And if you're honest, it's not you. Unless we weaken what we call sin so that we can, in our minds, cross the finish line. I read... Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? The one who has clean hands and a pure heart. And I don't conclude, well, that's what I got to do. I conclude, uh-oh. I conclude, woe is me. I'm undone. If that's the guy who ascends the hill of the Lord, that guy isn't me. I've already lifted my heart up to what is false. I've already made my heart impure. I've, I've, my hands are already dirty. If only the guy, in Joshua terms, if only the guy who obeys the law as they commit to here, as their parents did in Exodus 24, if only they, those are the guys who can live in this promised land under the blessing of God, then I, like every other Israelite, will see exile and curse. That is not... The way not to respond to this is buck up and try harder. The way to respond to this is to see yourself already beaten. You've already lost. I've already lost. Paul said, Paul said, I've already lost. When the, when the law said don't covet, I found coveting all the, over the place in my heart. And when you, when you, when you conclude I've already been beaten, it's done its job. Because... How do you respond here? Not to give up. Well, I've already lost. 
but to look for the one who did have a pure heart. To look for the one who did have clean hands. To look for the one who never did lift up his heart to what is false. The one who did ascend to the hill of the Lord. Look for the one who could do all these things, and that is Christ Jesus, who committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. These passages, rather than to cause us to look inward, so that how good am I doing? Not very. It should, it should cause us to, to, to look outward for a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In Him, we find all those things true about God, sovereignty of justice and holiness as we saw earlier. But in Him, in His flesh and blood, we, we find most fully displayed faithfulness and mercy to those who repent and believe. We are the sojourner. And in that way, Joshua, even in its bleakest chapters like this one, point us forward to a greater hope in Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for um, the verity of your word. Thank you that it's true. Thank you that... uh, the promise that you work all things together for good for those who love you, you, that includes even the hard passages. You work together for our good, pointing us to Christ. Lord, I pray that we would take away from this chapter the importance of obedience, the importance of faithfulness, the, the importance of loving you more than the treasures of this world. That is right, Lord. But I pray that we would take uh, away from those things um, only, only being things that we can do in Christ who was perfect in our place and with only the help of the Holy Spirit. Help us to pursue those things, as we said earlier, not for a place of victory, but from a place of victory. And uh, Lord, we thank you for this. I pray that Uh, We would meditate for a long time on what we have learned about you and ourselves and how we ought to respond to this. Uh, Give us grace as we do uh, continue to think on these things, even as we leave. Lord, we pray that you would inhabit our praise in the next hour. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.